Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Now, our title today is Letting Go of Outcomes Without Giving Up Hope. Letting Go of Outcomes Without Giving Up Hope. And we are releasing this podcast on the day of the United States election 2020 on November 3rd. Now, I've purposely chosen this day as well as the text because it's so important now, but it's actually important for your whole life. Uh, as we find ourselves living in a polarized, mixed up, often confusing world, and that's not going to change. Uh, so our text comes out of Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the weeds and the wheat from Jesus. And like so many of his parables, it's shocking, it's disturbing, it's jolting, <clears throat> it's countercultural, it's almost scandalous, at least to us. It's not the way that most of us would run the world. But Fortunately, you're not, and I'm not. God is. Now, the shock of the parable that we're going to hear about is that a major work of the devil is inside the church, not only outside. And so, so often we're angry and judgmental. We get discouraged. We get confused. We say things we shouldn't say. We put words in God's mouth. But Jesus, in in Scripture, and again, through this parable, gives us such a gift, such a perspective. And so this message you're about to hear Uh, is based on the words of Jesus, of course, in this parable, but it helps us see the world rightly and and to know what are we to do then? How are we to function? So I pray this message will do uh, a few things for you. I I pray that you will not be surprised by the scandals and the lies and the hypocrisy that you're seeing around you, both inside and outside the church, but also that it will give you confidence that Jesus very much is in control. And as he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Uh, And we can trust that. At the same time, I I pray and hope that this is going to cause you to be ever more prayerful in an abiding relationship with Jesus. And and you'll be filled with hope because God really is working out a plan. uh, And it's a good plan to bring everything in heaven and earth under the feet of Jesus. So, this is a message from Jesus. Uh, it's meat. It's not milk. It's it's meant to help you grow up uh, so you can help others grow up around you. And so, again, our goal on Emotionally Healthy Discipleship is that uh, we'll move people from a shallow discipleship to one where they're deeply transformed in him. And so, uh, let me just invite you, before you we launch into this message, if you've never taken our a personal assessment about are you an emotional infant, child, adolescent, or adult, I want to invite you to do so today. Uh, go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash mature. Take 15 minutes, find out where you are, and I pray that you'll join us on a journey to, to become a, a mature, fully orbed follower of Christ and leader uh, that we as a church might be the salt and the light in the world that God intends. But for now, I just pray that God opens up your heart as you listen to this message on the rest of this podcast on letting go of outcomes without giving up hope. Let's go to Matthew 13. And so today is a very sobering parable, uh, which I'm calling the infected church. Let's begin reading at verse 34. I'm going to read the first section of it. and, And then what happens, he pauses, and then he goes into the mustard seed parable, and then he comes back and explains it later. So Chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 24, Jesus says, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat 
and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And so then later, beginning at verse 36, he goes into a house and his disciples come to him and say, hey, explain to us this parable. Then he kind of explains it here. So it's kind of like we're sitting in a house around Jesus' feet. And he's going to expound this to us. And, and really, this is a, it's a very sobering parable. In fact, after I got into it deeply, I said, why did I ever start this? Because I didn't like it. And uh, it's complicated. Uh, and challenging. But let's try to unpack it here, because he says, he says the field, he explains in, in verse 31 and following, he says the field is the world, and God sows good seed into this world, and he gives life. And then these seeds of wheat begin to grow. And then and over time, in this apparent season of inactivity, uh, an enemy comes, whom he describes as the devil himself, Satan. And in the same field, he sows seeds, but they're very deliberate, and he sows them right in the middle of the wheat, and they're weeds, W-E-E-D-S. And the wheat and the wheat grass all look, the wheat and the weeds look alike, and you really can't quite tell the difference. But then eventually it becomes clear. Now, in those ancient Israel, weeds were, an, were a grass-like crop that actually choked the life out of the wheat. And there was a law against it in ancient Israel because the people who planted weeds were basically your enemies for revenge and because they hated you and were jealous of you. And so there was a law saying you do not plant weeds among people's wheat to destroy their crop. And, and so what happens here is as, as God is building his kingdom, as the kingdom of God is going forth and God sows all his good seed and wheat begins to grow, an enemy comes and sows all his bad seed in the middle of it. And all these weeds come that are threatening to choke out the good seeds. And so when they realize, the servants look at this in verse 26 and say, what's going on here? What should we do? Should we, should we go and pull the weeds out? Of course. Let's get rid of these weeds. And here's the shock of the parable. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Verse, uh, verse uh, 29, no, no, do not pull the weeds up because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. And so here's the shock of the parable. Ready for this? The devil is not simply out there in the world. He's inside the church. Now, is that bad news or what? <laughs> Makes me just want to run out the door. And you'll notice in verse 41 is a very key verse. He says, at the end of history, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. That evil, that'll be at the end of history. But it's not like Satan is in one corner with bad seed and God's in, over in the other corner with good seed. That's not the picture here. The picture here is, you'll notice in verse 41, it's in his kingdom. In, in, in the kingdom itself, as it's going forth, you have a mix. It's all intertwined. And, I mean, if God's building his church, why are there all these bad people in it? 
all these evil people. And, and the devil's here. The, the church is, it's infected. It's mixed. It's, it's ambiguous. It's unclear. It, it's vague. I mean, I don't know about you, but I became a Christian to get away from evil. I came for the abundant life. I came into God's people. I'm expecting things to be good here. I'm not looking for war. I'm not looking for evil. I'm not looking for all these weeds along with the wheat. And uh, I, didn't, I wasn't expecting the devil to be inside the church. Were you? I'm not sure I would have showed up. But how many people say, ah, oh, I just want to go back to the book of Acts. Oh, the book of Acts. <laughs> oh, Acts 2, 42 to 47. Ah, oh, Pentecost, the Spirit came. They, they worshiped. They had everything in common. You know, they fellowshiped. They broke bread. They, they sat at the apostles' feet. People came to Christ. It was just awesome. Heaven. Then we read Christian books and Christian magazines about these incredible moves of God and revivals and churches and different parts of the world and heaven on earth. You're thinking, where am I going to church? I mean, what? I like what Eugene Peterson calls it, ecclesiastical pornography. You know, <laughs> you know, our church plant was no different than most church plants. We started New Life Fellowship and said, you know what, we're going to be different. We are going to have a church without weeds. If you're a weed, we're throwing you out. We're getting you out of here. Because we're going to have a nice church full of wheat. No problems. We're going to be different. It's very, if you're, how many of you are romantics? I mean, you're just a romantic. You just like, you're an idealist. You know, I, I am. And, and, and uh, you know, you think, I just, want, I just want, I want it to be beautiful. I want to go to some small church where everybody's on the same page. No bad people. No weeds. Everybody loves Jesus. That's why folks join monasteries. We'll just we'll make it really hard for people to get in. And just a few of us will be in the, within the walls. And we're going to have heaven on earth. But if you got some weeds in you out, no way you're getting in here. And then it's so great when you read journals of people who've, done, you know, who've gone to monasteries like Thomas Merton, so totally disillusioned because they, they couldn't get rid of the weeds. Even with the, with the highest, you know, walls up. And, and so here, here's the pain. Every church is infected. Every parachurch is infected with weeds. Every nonprofit ministry with the best motive and best vision, starting out with the best people, has weeds. Every seminary and every Bible college, every good work has weeds. Now go to the next slide here. And uh, because there's a, um, this is the country of, of Bhutan. Ever heard of Bhutan? And, and uh, Bhutan or Bhutan, and there it is. It, it's, it's actually a country of, of 700,000 people. It's between India and China. It's in the Himalayas. And a beautiful place. Now, now uh, the prime minister has, has written recently about basically how their country is different than the other countries because they're not motivated by greed at all. Uh, in fact, they, 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 don't, they don't follow gross national products like we do the GMP. They follow gross national happiness. <laughs> the Buddhist kingdom. And uh, they have a new constitution. In their constitution, imagine a government's constitution. They evaluate and judge everything economically by how it impacts people's happiness. Transportation, uh, the, the court system, the uh, agriculture, 
All programs and foreign trade are not judged by their economic benefits, but what they offer the people in terms of the happiness they produce. So the government aims to create conditions for gross national happiness. I'm thinking about moving there myself. <laughs> All cigarettes are banned. TV was just introduced 10 years ago. The capital city has no stoplight, not one light, and just one traffic officer on duty. They have an intricate model of well-being with 72 indicators of happiness that government judges, from, from feelings of compassion to calmness to generosity. So here's what the secretary of the Gross Happiness Commission said as he sat in his office at the end of a hard day of work that made him happy. This is true. He says, we have devised mathematical formulas to reduce happiness to its tiniest component parts. Very intricate and very complex. Now, I say that because as a romantic and as an idealist, as a perfectionist, I'd like to go to Bhutan. I'm thinking about moving there, I'm at least vacation. I mean, I live, we live in New York. I mean, it's very, it seems very pure there, doesn't it? We got traffic, we got crime, we've got problems. We have a lot of lovely things in New York. But there's something about in all of us that just wants this romantic, pure vision for life that we long for. And, um, but the problem is that you are in a great war. Uh, the great war is going on around you, both outside and what Jesus is saying is particularly inside the church. And uh, there's a spiritual warfare going on. There, are, there is weeds and there is wheat. There is good and, and there is evil. There is God and there is, there is a satanic power that sows seeds within to bring destruction and destroy the good seeds. And so the Bible speaks about powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And there's a dragon enraged to make war against the church. And uh, I like what John Calvin wrote, that there's no human power that these, there's no hum, human person that can withstand the powers of evil on their own. And uh, Jesus has conquered the powers and principalities, but they're still alive. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is, so you get it in the kingdom, the kingdom of God in the church, Satan's there too. And uh, the kingdom of God is this we all, they, they, just you know, in Jesus' day, they were expecting when the Messiah came, it'd be a pure kingdom. All the weeds would be gone. The church, inside the church, it's going to be perfect. Someone sins, God will kill them, we'll throw them out like Ananias and Sapphira. We're not going to have the problems. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God's going to come, but it's going to be a mix. It's going to be, the kingdom's going to be already here, but not yet fully here. And it's not till the end of history when he will end it, and he'll bring a final judgment. But in the meantime, even inside the church, it's going to be a bit vague. It's going to be a bit fuzzy. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I first pondered this thing, the more I thought about it, the worse it became. Now, remember the mustard seed. The kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. It's apparently insignificant and powerless and defeated. I mean, that's bad enough. I'm looking for let's make it happen. Let's show the city what we got. And Jesus says, no, no, the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. But now he says, not only that, the church itself is infected. Oh, I said, that's great. That's just great. The church is infected. Wonderful. We have a worm. So how weak are we going to be? I mean, he makes his power made perfect in weakness. But I mean, come on now. Very sobering, isn't it? Now, the focus of this parable, like the mustard seed, is Jesus says, I want you to understand, evil may be everywhere. And it may look like the good seed is going to get crushed. But I want to tell you something. This mustard seed kingdom is going to explode and fill the earth. 
that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of, us, of our God. Evil will be overthrown. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Don't ever get discouraged as you watch church history, as you watch what's going on around you. I'm telling you, nothing's going to stop that good seed from eventually filling up the earth. But in the meantime, it's going to look at times like the evil weeds are going to crush and destroy the good. But don't, but don't be deceived by that. But it's a mix right now. And uh, I like what he said to John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was discouraged and thought about quitting, just like some of us. We get discouraged. We're such idealists. We say, I became a Christian. I joined the church. I was not expecting warfare and weeds. But as Jesus said to John the Baptist, as he's about to get his head cut off, he's thinking, this should not be happening. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Blessed is the one who does not get confused by this and does not quit and throw in a towel. Listen, many of us, when we experience failure and get knocked around a bit, lose our idealism, and we say, I could be a great Christian if it wasn't for other Christians. I'd be tremendous. But he's calling us here to be patient, to be content, to be certain about the future, to love his church, but to be unshakable, because we understand the nature of the kingdom and the way it works. Again, verse 41, there'll come a day when he will weed out of his kingdom. That's the key text. It's out of the kingdom itself. It's not like they're over there in a corner. It's in the midst. He'll weed out, and he'll sort it out at the end. But in the meantime, it's going to be a bit challenging. So what do we do? Here's the question. What do you do in the meantime? I mean, I, I look around the room. I mean, I was thinking, you know, where are the weeds? I see one right over there. <laughs> if we could just get rid of him. Some of you are saying, if I could just get rid of my spouse, that weed is killing me, you know. Or if we just get rid of so-and-so of my small group, what a small group we would have. It'd be awesome. Because like the, in this parable, folks in this parable are saying, Jesus, these weeds are messing up your work. They're, they're, they're messing up your name. They're hurting people. We, we got to get rid of them right now. And so I'm going to give you, we're going to look at a pie chart. Because it, it, it was really challenging, obviously, to ponder this thing, all of its implications for us. But what do we do here? Because we're living in, this is the reality. You may not like it. It may be very sobering, but it is true. We're living in the midst of weeds and wheat. All churches are infected. I think we do as best job we can at New Life, but we're in this reality. So so what are we to do? First is, we are to judge very, I want you to catch this, very, very slowly. Three varies. Because he says in verse 29, he says, they say, should we pull up the wheat? You know, what do I do here? Do, do, I, do, I, do I yank it out? Jesus says, no, no. Verse 29, no, you do not pull up the wheat. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let them both grow until the harvest, the end of the age. Now you see, even the best farmers in ancient Israel, when they had a field and there was wheat and there was weeds all intertwined, even the best farmers could not distinguish the two. And so in the same way, if you pull out the weeds, you're going to pull out some good wheat by mistake. So we may want to get rid of Andrew and pull him out, but we might lose Laurel in the process. And uh, because the roots of the wheat and the weeds in ancient times underneath the ground all got intertwined. 
And so you don't, what he's saying is, you don't have it to pull it out. Let God do it at the end of the age. You relax and uh, let God build his church. And so Jesus takes final judgment out of all of our hands. And uh, it seems, I don't know about you, but if you read this, it can seem like very soft. Well, it sounds like anything goes. I mean, it's all unacceptable. It's, it's going to be a madhouse in here. And, and did you ever say to yourself, Jesus, this person is getting away with murder. You know, I'm going to do something about it. And, and Jesus says, no, I'm passionate against evil. I will do something about it in my time. And, uh, but we want Jesus to do more, and we want him to act faster. And so the, the great verse, do not judge or you, will not, or you will be judged, right? Matthew 7, 1. Now, it's very important when you read scripture, any text, you read it in context of the whole book because you've got to balance this off. It doesn't say don't ever, when it says do not judge, it doesn't mean do not have discernment because Jesus in Matthew 7 calls us to have discernment, good fruit and bad fruit, false prophets and good prophets. So we are called for discernment, and it doesn't mean don't think because we are called to think. And uh, uh, so we're not to surrender our, our judgment. But we are called, we are called to, to not make final judgments on anybody. Ever. We do not make final judgments. And we do not confidently assess people's character. So, for example, often I'll get asked by people, well, Pete, do you think, you know, that person, he murdered somebody or raped someone or he's a pedophile or, or Hitler or Pol Pot, they're going to hell, right, Pete? And, and every time I, I get that question, I understand it's a, it's a, for me, it's a temptation to cross a line. Because what God says is you don't ever make final judgment on any human being. That is reserved for God alone. Is this person going to heaven? Is this person going to hell? Where are they going to end up? You know what? God's good. God is just. God is loving. He will handle it just fine. He will unravel the roots of these wheats and weeds and all that. I just let it go. And uh, he will sort it out at the end of history. The great challenge is it's very easy to live life, me versus you, us versus them. And we have category. They're good. He's bad. You know, I, I had two, and Jesus is calling us to a deeper identity. I had two pastors within the space of a year who fell morally. And I remember my, my first reaction, of course, was weeds, you know, you are, you know, judge them quickly and versus, oh, oh, that, that could have been me. And I know that I'm capable of anything. And Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Perfectionism, this is a call against perfectionism. Some of us uh, have a spiritual disorder called perfectionism. And we divide Christians into two categories. Good ones, spiritual ones, and bad ones. Wheat and probably weeds. Parents do it to kids, bosses do it to their employees, teachers do it with students. Uh, pastors do it with people in the church, and people do it with the church with leaders. Uh, spouses do it with each other. I mean, it's, it's, it's an epidemic. And some of us were raised in families that were perfectionistic. We're perfectionistic with ourselves, and we forget. No, 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 no. We are to judge very, very, very slowly, even ourselves. Be very kind. David is the person who's given most space in the Bible outside Jesus' character. And his life is filled with imperfections. And yet he's got his, his sins are in there. He, he, he's a man after God's own heart. 
But um, the way of David is the way of imperfection. And so we are to judge very, very, very slowly. Now, let me just make a note here before I go on to point two is, is that there is a place for church discipline. And the church is called by Jesus in Matthew 18 and in 1 Corinthians to have boundaries and to be discerning uh, about uh, what is truth and what is not. And so you'll notice in, in the early church, they had to sort out What's why the Nicene Creed is so important. What does Scripture teach about who Jesus is? What does Scripture teach about who God is and about salvation? And there were folks who were determined were outside those boundaries. And that's why to be in leadership and to have to exercise that discernment is such a frightening place to be. Because one recognizes the challenge of sorting out those boundary lines. But every church has them and has to have them, and all through history. But we do it in great brokenness and humility. When you don't have brokenness in leadership trying to sort out the infected church so it's healthy, uh, then that's when you have inquisitions and crusades and you destroy a lot of good people. That's why it's so important to pray for leadership. False zeal for a pure church is dangerous. It'll destroy it. The Pharisees wanted purity. The Essenes were a desert community where John the Baptist, most scholars believe, participated in. They did not let anybody in that community was not pure. The zealots during the time of Jesus were into purity. So Jesus was saying, you don't understand. My kingdom is not about exclusivity and purity. Always take that into account. It's a mix in there. And only God at the end of time will sort that out. So when you start looking around and say, Who's, who is it? Who is it in here? You calm down. Calm down. Let it go and judge very, very, very slowly. And then you do... What Jesus says is you confront yourself first. We are not like everybody else. Most people are blaming and blaming and blaming. This is very difficult to do, to confront yourself first. Now, you, many of you know the scripture. When Jesus talks about Matthew 7, he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank, the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take that plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Oh, I don't know. I, 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 you can, I can, I'm not going to try. I'm not going to do it right now, so don't do it. But look around. If you, if you were going to look around the room, you look at their hair, you look at their dress, you look at their posture. You know, do they, do they even have their Bibles? You know, are they spending time with God? You know, I mean, why does that guy have a collar on? I mean, well, what's, you know, denominations. I look at church history. I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know, and. Other meetings, I go to other churches, I'm like, oh, I don't know, this seems a bit off. I don't know these people, is their heart really in it? And, 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 and it's just so easy to just look that way and, and project outwards. It's like when someone critiques me, you know, someone's, someone's got, you know, a little correction to bring in my life, and they're pointing out a speck in my eye, I want to say, hey, hey, have you seen the three logs in yours? And I can't even see that I'm doing it. Now, if someone says something to you that hurts you or makes you angry, most of us, we can't even begin to confront ourselves first, look at ourselves in the mirror, because all we can see is them when we're so angry. And that's why we don't have the hearts that are pure enough to sort out evil. We just don't. And so, and so when someone says something or does something to you, and, and say it hurts you, and it's painful, but they didn't mean to hurt you. But you, it doesn't matter. You, you don't even know if they did it from an evil intention. All you know is it feels like they did. And so all you can see is weed, weed, <laughs> weed. 
and, and, and you just, you just want to go. And, 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 and the last thing you feel like doing is looking at yourself and saying, well, maybe there's some truth in this, and what is there about me? And, 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 uh, but Joseph, in, in Genesis 50, whose brothers betrayed him, was able to even say at the end of his life, listen, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And so in other words, Joseph just didn't go after it first. He was able to just keep looking at himself and eventually got, got to God. You know, I, I pick up people who lie very quickly. I mean, I, when people are exaggerating, and folks I know, I, it annoys me. Because I lie. But I don't see when I lie and exaggerate as quickly as when I see when you do. It's very tricky. I can tell you, ruthlessly eliminate hurry. It's in our rule of life. Well, my wife has been telling me for now, probably at least a couple of months, hey, Pete, when are you going to start living that thing you preach? <laughs> you always do it to the things to the last minute, and then you run out the door. But, I, but it's so easy just to ignore it, and I can preach it and talk about it, but uh, not see the log in my own eye. I mean, we had a pastor's conference a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I, I mean, here I was telling pastors about living with integrity and not skimming on their relationship with God, with their marriages or families or leadership. I mean... I mean, I like, like, oh, I must have been crazy. Oh, God, you know. Because it's so easy. The very thing I'm asking and encouraging people not to do, I'm doing it. Because I have more going on than I should. I can tell you, trust Jesus. Trust him. Step out in faith. Get out of the boat and walk toward Jesus. Make a change in your life. Don't be afraid. But I'm petrified. <laughs> I'm petrified to make a few moves myself. And I'm afraid of the own, my own future and changes. But it's just so easy to do, isn't it? Because it preaches people going, amen. I'm like, amen, yes, you know. <laughs> Come on, how often is the very thing that you can't stand in other people and you realize it's in you? If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's awful, it's awful. Come on, how easy it is when you're a parent. You watch your child and you correct them. But you correct them in such a reactive way. You've now committed a double blunder. And your kids are like, Dad, but you're all yelling. But you're like, shut up and listen to me. I'm the authority here, you know. Because confronting yourself is just not in the agenda. It's just, it's them. And you did a little bit wrong, and we're going to address this right now. How about at work? Someone does something awful. Maybe they gossip. They slander somebody. And you're like, yeah. And you get around the water cool, and you're all talking about so-and-so that gossiped. You know, but you're gossiping. But you're like, you can't even see that you're gossiping. Because you're not, you, you, you don't con your, your life is not confronting yourself first. And the weed's growing up in your own heart. You can't even see it. I mean, same thing with marriage. I mean, it's a marriage is so, it's amazing. I, I can be home, I'm tired, I'm annoyed. I come home and, I, and, I, and I, I ask Jerry a question, but I'm really picking a fight. And then she reacts and I react back. And, oh, you're so touchy, I say to her. You know, but I, and I walk upstairs, you know, but it, it, I don't look at myself first. I'm saying, she's just so touchy. Can't she just relax? I had a hard day. Now, there is self-confrontation does not mean self-condemnation. Right, so I don't want to go there. Some of us, are, we're so perfectionistic about ourselves. We have to be perfect all the time that we get into a self-condemnation. It's a spiral downward. So I'm not talking about that, okay? We're not, we're not to be perfectionistic with ourselves either. We live under grace, by grace. But to do this, whether it's judge you very, very, very slowly or confront yourself first, friends, without space in your life, this is not possible. When I'm busy... I don't have time to confront myself. All I have time is to confront you. <laughs> Quick. 
I'm trying to help the church. And without silence and cultivating our personal relationship with him, I don't think we have a prayer to live this out. I think we just get wrapped up into the craziness. Um, that's why cultivating you know, offices, your, your, your walk with God is so critical to this. Okay, now there's a third piece, though. And I, and I, I don't know, it's not an order. I think they all go together. But, but the, there's this, ju- so instead of, I'm not going to pull you out. I'm tempted, believe me, pull out the weeds and throw you out the door. Cut off the relationship. So I want to judge very, very slowly. I want to confront myself first. But then I want to I do what the Bible teaches, which is practice acts of kindness. Now, really, the scripture would be overcome evil with good. It's said in so many ways in the New Testament. But we are actually people, the very folks that we don't like, that we want to judge, that even hurt us, uh, we are, yes, to forgive them, but we are actually to practice acts of kindness toward them. I mean, talk about revolutionary. We are to be kind even to the weeds, who we think are weeds, who might be weeds. You don't know anyway. So in the midst of the worm the computer virus floating around our midst. We are to love everyone, wheat and weeds. And uh, so that even by God's grace, some of the wheat, some of the wheat, uh, weeds will be turned to wheat. And uh, I, it's like Jesus is saying to the zealots and the Pharisees, hey, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This kingdom's about mercy, not religion. Studies have been done in universities about this issue of practicing kindness that what it does to your own joy level. Secular studies, I mean, over and over again. One I read recently, it was fascinating. Just how, if you just pick one day a week over six weeks, just one day, and you will do three to five acts of kindness, just little kindnesses. I'll give you some examples in a moment. Or you'll do one thing out of the ordinary kind to somebody else. If you'll do it one day a week for six weeks, the study said, it's almost guaranteed you will experience a greater joy in your life. Because God built you that way, to practice acts of kindness, in our case, to everyone. So what does that look like? For example, it means as you're coming up the stairs today, and it was crowded in that hallway, and somebody came in and they were in a bad mood, and they bumped you because you're in their way, and they're angry, and you're like, oh, please, after you. (laughs) Act of kindness. Or you're in the parking lot, and you're like jostling for your parking space, and they come and just cut in front of you and take the space right there on the side parking lot. You say, after you. <laughs> oh, you're on the Long Island Expressway and you're driving, and that guy or young lady just cuts you off. And you almost, and you're like, oh, after you. Fine. You get to the toll booth at the Tribal Bridge. It's, oh, you went up another dollar. Wonderful. May the city balance its budget. <laughs> Someone pushes you on the seven train, you know, it's crowded. And you're just, and you're tempted to determine they're a weed that should be removed forever. But you just say, oh, nice to meet you. My name is Peter. But really, it could be anything from an act of kindness of, of actually feeding a person's parking meter that's expired to donating blood to writing a thank you letter to someone who's actually done something nice for you, maybe in your small group, or helping somebody out with their homework or their taxes, or maybe even just buying somebody a cup of coffee or an ice cream cone, or washing someone's dishes, or helping 
a stranger with their computer virus or problems, or volunteering to host a small group and all the hassle of cleaning your house and opening it up and cleaning it up afterwards, or changing diapers in that nursery first or second service, or tutoring a high school student, or visiting a sick neighbor, or giving somebody actually a kind gift of time, or being courteous, ready for this, to a telemarketer, offering somebody maybe after church instead of running out the door, you actually just pause and offer somebody a sincere hello, looking them in the eye or maybe a hug, depending on your culture, of course, you know, a smile, like a real smile, like you're engaged with them, like they have some value. Uh, It's saying a sincere thank you to a cashier at Wallbounds or it's fully listening to a friend who's burdened, uh, or surprising somebody perhaps with a, with a home-cooked meal, or even a phone call. I mean, it could go on. But this is a, this is a revolutionary activity in the midst of a, when there's warfare going on inside the church with weed and weeds. So there is a judge very, very slowly. Confront yourself first, practice acts of kindness. But Jesus says this, remember, This kingdom, which appears to be so weak, insignificant, defeated, powerless, even so mixed up within the church itself, and you read church history and you're like, I look at church history, what a mix, you know, racism and slave trades and marriages falling apart and scandals. Jesus says, there's always going to be this mix in the church to the end of the age. Don't be surprised, grow up. Let your idealism come back to earth. But know this, this kingdom will fill the earth one day. And nothing in hell is going to stop the kingdoms of this world from becoming the kingdoms of our God. And the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. We're living in the midst of of the already and the not yet, but but know this. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. These seeds, the good seeds are so powerful, nothing in hell is going to stop them from growing. And so we have this kind of a certainty that God's working out a plan. He's in control. The end of history is coming, but it's going to come through weakness. Even the church is infected. How could it be? Yes, this treasure is in jars of clay. People like me and you. I know, I would not have written this parable. I would not have spoken it. In fact, if I was writing the New Testament, I would have put it in the appendix. (laughs) But he put it right there. His power is made perfect in weakness. It's amazing. That's how the kingdom has always advanced. Think of Judas and the 12 disciples. Like, it's always been this way. Think of Moses in the wilderness. Think of the New Testament churches. What a mess, divisions and splits and fights, and somehow this thing's advancing through the world. It's actually remarkable. So let's do this. We're going to close. Let's begin, let's let's end with getting the weeds out of ourselves. It's a good way to start. And I don't think we want to tolerate weeds. We want to say, God, help us. And so I want to ask, worship team, you come forward, and I want you to think of a very, think of someone, perhaps, with whom you have tension. Someone that perhaps is driving you crazy. You're wondering if they are a weed. In fact, you may have determined they were a weed. And so right now, I want to invite you. We're going to have a little bit of silence for a minute or two. And I want to invite you to judge judge very, very, very slowly. Because you are not God and you don't know the heart. I want to invite you to confront yourself first. And then what might a practical act of kindness be? You know, forgive 
goes, well, what, is that? what might that look like? Without, while holding on to yourself, not that you're a doormat, but to embrace you know, imperfection here in the kingdom. So let's do that. Let's, let's, uh, we just keep it, just don't sing the song. Now. Let's just bow our heads before God. And I want to invite you to think of someone or a situation that's really challenging for you right now. What might it look like for you to judge very, very, very slowly instead of quickly? What might it look like for you to confront yourself first before looking at the speck in their eye? And what might practical kindness look like? Let's take a minute, just right now before the Lord. Let's all stand. We're going to have two movements right now. This first song I'm going to sing is called, Is There Any Forgiveness? And I want to invite you to let forgiveness wash over you. It's a wonderful prayer in, these, in this song. And to receive the greatest miracle of all, which is just forgiveness and communion with God through the blood of Christ. Let's sing it together. So let's do this. I want to invite us all to just open your hands up towards heaven and just receive forgiveness. And Jesus says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And who of us in this room has not crossed the line in the name of discernment often and judged inappropriately and brought a judgment of condemnation rather than confront ourselves and not been kind? And so as you've confessed your sins, receive right now forgiveness from heaven himself, the Lord himself. For Jesus' blood was shed on that cross so that you don't have to pay for your sins. He paid every drop of blood price for that sin. And so he offers to you and to me just fresh forgiveness, cleansing, washing from the inside out. And just receive that forgiveness now from him. Embrace it. The miracle of the kindness of God. Amen. Wonderful. Now, one other thing I want us to do here is we apply this message. A, put this next song up, Michael. See, part of what this text is meant to do is to help us grow up and that we see what is true about reality, about God's kingdom and God's church, but we still love her. We love the church with all the warts and worms and weeds. And this, great, this song, Your Grace is Enough, you know, it begins by saying, great is your faithfulness of God. That's how great God is. He even moves through such a weak thing like the church. You wrestle with the sinner's heart. And then the, the pre-chorus, so it goes, remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your promise. I mean, you, it's a, it's a, it comes from the Psalms. They always prayed like that. Remember your people. Remember your promise. Like we're, oh God, build your kingdom. But there's a, there's a love and a, and a heart there just for the community, that knowing that it's a mix in me out there, but... Jesus loves the church, and I love the church, and I'm part of this thing, and, and God's building his kingdom. And so rather than being angry and upset all the time with all those bad weeds floating around, 
Because I, I pray for the church. I love the church. And, I, and God, remember your children. Remember your promise, oh God. Build your kingdom, Lord, at the end of the age. And I trust you with it. And the words in this, in this song are just so beautiful. Because great is your, your grace is enough. His grace really is enough that he makes us so weak that when it's all done, we say, it is God who did it, who built this kingdom. It is God who expanded this church through history and not us. It's all by his grace. Let's sing it together. And, all right. I want to invite the prayer teams to come forward. And we're going to close and just be dismissed. And the communion table's over to your right. And again, communion is all about weakness, isn't it? That I, I, I need your bread and your life inside of me to even live for you. So you're welcome to come to the communion table. And up here to your left, as we close, uh, you know who you are, uh, who struggle with, your, you've got, whether it's, you know, just unforgiveness in your heart, uh, bitterness, rage, you just can't even see yourself. Or you're sitting here discouraged and you've been wounded uh, by serving Christ and by others in the, in the church over, over the years. And you're, you're just deeply wounded and scarred uh, in such a way that it's very hard for you to move in. I want you to come as well. Listen, the word of God is like a seed, and that seed is to grow and blossom. And maybe your seed right now is not growing inside of you, and God wants it to come alive and empower you. And as we surrender, his power fills us and actually changes us. That's the beauty of it, but it, it's us surrendering, and then his power actually transforms us from the inside out. So let's close. I'm going to pray for you and open up. Maybe just close your hands up towards heaven once again, and let's speak a blessing over you, and our altar teams will stay here as long as we need to stay. And you may be here this morning, and you need to come to Christ for the first time to have God's life planted in you. You come as well. So again, for whatever sickness, deliverance, healing, you come. I will anoint you with oil and pray for you. So with hands open. And so, Lord, may your love like a river flow through the balcony and the first floor in this place. And may your love like a river just soak us from our heads to our minds, to our hearts, to our spirits, the depth of our being, to every ounce into our body. And Lord, may you transform us and help us to let go, to release people, to let you run the universe, the world, to sort out all the intertwined roots Teach us to rest in you. I pray, Lord, you might remove discouragement and fill every person here with a certainty of hope of the future and a love in their hearts towards those even who've hurt them. And may, Lord, we be a gift to all whom we touch and speak to as we leave this place. Be blessed as you go in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.